0: hello everybody welcome to another episode of Transfigured this is a solo episode presentation that I'll be doing um, this is a presentation about the development of Christology in early Christianity up to the Council of Nicaea and a little bit after um, this is actually very similar to a presentation I had tacked on a video I made a couple video a couple episodes ago that was my response to Gavin Ortland. A lot of you, multiple of you out there listening suggested, hey, Sam, you had this excellent presentation at the end of that episode, but it was a little bit buried and hidden. How about you do an episode that's just that presentation that would make it easier for me to share with my friends or pass along or get the attention it deserves, et cetera. So I'm doing exactly that. Um, But this is a little bit updated, expanded and modified. I took into account a little bit of feedback and I also added a couple things that I had left out of that presentation. This one will be a little bit longer than that. Um, But my goal is to kind of make a concise, by my definitions, this will probably be about two hours, Uh, presentation of how I understand and see the development of Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity over time in early Christianity. And this is sort of a condensation and a distillation of a lot of the things that I've noticed in my Church Fathers series. If you're just coming to this video and haven't seen anything else on my channel, I have a whole playlist on going through the early Church Fathers with my friend Hank So if you liked this video, then I'd recommend checking that out for more detail. Um, And sort of one of my main points in this video is trying to be honest with the historical record about the various um, diverse positions of Christology and early Christianity, how they developed and changed over time, which which major figures uh, presented those ideas, etc., But another one of my points is that I think it is very difficult for Protestant Trinitarians to hold to a position of sola scriptura and to, quote-unquote, orthodox Trinitarianism. I think that one of my main um, distillations and conclusions from my study of early Christianity is that the doctrine of the Trinity really did develop over time. And you really can't see full or fully orthodox Christians until the second half of the fourth century, starting around about 360 A.D. And so if you want to be a Christian that believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to have either a theology that allows for the development of doctrine over time. Lots of Catholics and Eastern Orthodox folks are perfectly fine with the idea of doctrinal development, and they believe that, say, the Holy Spirit is guiding the institution of the church into greater understanding. And so what I'm saying to those sorts of people, it might not bother them. In fact, they might be, yeah, that sounds about right, Sam. Uh, But if you're such a Christian that does not believe in the development of doctrine over time, um, especially if you're a Sola Scriptura Protestant like I am, I think that this presentation should show you that there is no real logically coherent way to be an Orthodox Trinitarian. And that is because if we are to believe the Bible in its original context, if we are to understand the New Testament as divinely authoritative in its original audience context, then there are no Trinitarians in the original context of the gospel. There are no Trinitarians in the first century, second century, or third century, as far as we can tell from the historical record. And I think the historical record is good enough and detailed enough to give us very good reasons and high levels of confidence for thinking that there were no such people during that time. And so I think that you really have to make a choice as a Christian. I think you're either going to have to believe in Sola Scriptura or something even close. Like, you know, you can say, "Eh, I'm not really a Sola Scriptura person, but even if you're the sort of person who's like, well, I do kind of generally agree with the overall principle of believing in the earliest version of Christianity as Jesus taught to his apostles, as documented in the New Testament, even if you don't necessarily like, you know, the way Martin Luther, for example, would have articulated the definition of Sola Scriptura, I still think you will find it hard to evade the conclusion that a different Christology is the necessary conclusion from the historical evidence. So without any further ado, I am going to get into this presentation. I think that there are three camps of anti-Nicene, proto-Orthodox Christology. So what do I mean by proto-Orthodox? So in this presentation, I'm not going to look at the full diversity of what could be called Christianity. I'm going to be looking at what I'll call proto-Orthodox, even though I don't particularly like that term, but I don't really have a better one. What I mean by proto-Orthodox is the group of Christians who would have more or less acknowledge the authority of let's say the four gospels that we have now the writings of paul and the writings of john more or less the new testament that we have now although obviously it's a little bit more complicated than that because not all these people that i'm going to talk about would have been aware of all the works of the new testament or they might have disputed a book here or there or they might have had other books in their New Testament. So I'm not saying they had the exact same New Testament that I did, but they would have, basically I think the main thing is they would have liked to John and they would have liked Paul um, and that they were, and that they would also have been the sort of Christians who would have believed in the importance of some sort of continuity with the 12 apostles. And so I, I know that Catholics and Orthodox might be saying, ah, so you believe in apostolic succession. I'm not saying like, that they would have necessarily believed that you needed to be underneath a bishop who had a complete and continuous continuity of apostolically appointed bishoprics or something like that. Although some some people did believe something like that, I'll admit that. But in general, that the proto-Orthodox are the Christians who connected their faith to the Jesus movement through the Twelve Apostles and the books and stuff that were written by them. And so I think that this mostly excludes two types of Christians. This excludes early Gnostic Christians. And again, the word Gnostic is hard to define, and it's a little bit blurry, but I think that there are a family of different sorts of Christianities who have enough in common with each other, even if they don't have everything in common with each other, that you can label as Gnostic. And this would be Christians, mostly they would be Christians who believe that Jesus was a spiritual messenger from the God of highest heaven who never takes on flesh, but only appears to look like a human. Now, there could be a close variety of this where you think that Jesus was a human and that the Christ was a spirit who dwelled in Jesus and then left Jesus or something like that, such that the Christ itself isn't a human with flesh, but there was a human who is operated by the Christ. That's a closely related idea. But anyway, I think that Gnostic Christians would actually mostly be defined by the belief that the God of the Old Testament was a bad God who was not the God of highest heaven. I actually think that is probably the belief that most well classifies this group of Christians. And therefore, they would have rejected the Old Testament as a full revelation of the God of highest heaven. Now, some Christians, like Valentinus, are like, well, it's a mix of good things and bad things. Anyway, it's complicated, and Gnostic is a hard label to define, but I'm mostly excluding them from my analysis. I'm also excluding Jewish Christians from this analysis, and by Jewish Christians, I don't mean Christians who were ethnically Jewish, who converted from Judaism to Christianity. I mean Jewish Christians in the sense of Christians who followed Torah and kept the law and therefore would have rejected the writings of the Apostle Paul. and But then you can say, well, Sam, there do seem to have been some Christians who kept the law, but we're fine with Gentiles who didn't keep the law. And I agree that these boundaries get a little bit fuzzy. But for the most part, I'm talking about groups like the Ebionites and the Nazarenes, who seem to have had their own scriptures and rejected the scriptures of the Proto-Orthodox and rejected the authority of Paul. Uh, And John, perhaps you could add to that list too. So, I'm not really going to consider those two Christologies, although actually, honestly, most Jewish Christians had what is similar to what I'll call biblical Unitarian Christology. But I'm sort of excluding those two groups from consideration and talking about the somewhat amorphous but still somewhat definable group that will later become the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church, as you could call it, and then that'll split into Orthodox and Catholics and eventually Protestants too. So that is the the group that I'm most closely focusing on here. Again, I agree these boundaries are not perfectly clear. They are a little bit blurry from time to time, but I think they're clear enough to make the distinctions that I'm trying to make here. Okay, so within the camp of Proto-Orthodox, I think there are three types of anti Nicene Christology. There's what I'll call biblical Unitarianism, which is basically the idea that Jesus began to exist as a human being. He is a mere man, you could say, or a man of men, as they sometimes called it. And he gets exalted to a divine status after his death, and that he has some sort of glorified or maybe even divinized status as a human now. There's Logos Incarnation Christology in which they believe that the Logos is a creation of God and is some sort of secondary or subordinate deity and that this secondary deity becomes incarnate in Mary and ascends back to heaven. And then there's what you could call a modalist. A modalist would believe that the Logos is an aspect or a attribute or a mode of being of the one God who becomes incarnate and Mary ascends back to heaven. So uh, those two can be a little bit confusing with each other, although they didn't really like each other, I'll say. And these names are not the names that they would have used back then. These are names that I'm just finding descriptive uh, now for the record. So how do you distinguish really between these three camps of anti-Nicene Christology? I think a series of questions is helpful and illuminating. And uh, one question is, is Jesus the highest God? And in which case the modalists will say yes, but Logos incarnationalists and biblical Unitarians will say, no, he's not. He's either a secondary God or he is a human empowered by the highest God. And then you could ask another question, Did Jesus create the original world or the original creation? A biblical Unitarian will say no. A Logos Incarnationalist and a Modalist will both agree that the answer is yes. Did Jesus pre-exist his human birth? A biblical Unitarian will also answer no. A Logos Incarnationalist and a Modalist will both say yes. And then, is Jesus Christ a human? A biblical Unitarian will say yes, although They will say yes in an extra sense of the word in that he originated as a human being, but both logos incarnationalists and modalists will say that the God or the second God was able to incarnate himself as a human. And so that he is human or has a human nature or something like that. Um, And then another question you could ask, and I think this will surprise people you could ask, is Jesus divine? And all three camps will say yes. And I think this is really important. A lot of people who are trying to argue for early Trinitarian theology or early high Christologies or something like that, they'll go through these church fathers and they'll be like, look, this church father calls Jesus God, so therefore they must believe in something like the Trinity. And that is way too simplistic and way too hasty to agree with that idea. all three camps, including the biblical Unitarians, think that Jesus is divine or can be called God in some sense. And I'll show quotes that support that later. So you can't just find a quote that calls Jesus God and come to a conclusion about their what, what their Christology is, is because it could be all three Christologies. That is not a very determinative word unless you get a very clear idea of what they mean by the word God. That is really the important thing. All of them think that Jesus is divine. They all think Jesus is divine in a slightly different sense. So you need to get a full detailed sense of what they mean by the word divine. Okay, another question you could ask is, the highest God is one person. And in which case, I'm going to say that all three of these camps are Unitarian in a broad sense. When I use biblical Unitarian, I use biblical Unitarian in a specific sense to mean a human who gets exalted to a divine status. When I say Unitarian in a broad sense, I'm saying Unitarian in the sense that you believe the highest God is one person as opposed to the highest God is three persons. So a Trinitarian would say the highest God is tripersonal or three persons in one, something like that. None of these Christologies believe that. The biblical Unitarians thought the highest God was one person and Jesus was a human who is subjected to that person. The Logos incarnationalists had a high God and then they had a secondary God. So the highest God is still one person. The modalists believe that the highest God is one person and that that one person becomes incarnate in Jesus. So all of them are Unitarian in the broader sense of the word, Um, but only biblical Unitarians are biblical Unitarian in how I'm going to use that term in a more narrow sense. All right. So I'm going to give a history and timeline of biblical Unitarianism from sort of the post-apostolic era to the Council of Nicaea and actually even a little bit after the Council of Nicaea. So I'm going to start with Clement of Rome. Um, He was active and writing sometime between 65 and 96 AD. He was the Bishop of Rome, often considered the second or third Bishop of Rome after Peter. He is possibly even mentioned in the New Testament. Philippians 4.3 mentions someone named Clement, and it could be the same Clement. He is even more probably mentioned in a book called *The Shepherd of Hermas*, which is written in the early first century, so that probably mentions Clement. Um, so here is a quote: We have one book by Clement. It's an epistle to the Corinthians, um, and here is a quote from it: "Let all the nations know that you are God alone, and Jesus Christ your Son, and we are all, and we are your people, the Shepherd of your pasture, Past- pasture. Sorry, excuse me." Um, So you can see here that God the Father is called God alone, and then next to this person who is God alone there is Jesus Christ, your son. When someone says that someone is God alone, that's what they mean and so but this doesn't uh this means that they're not that uh, clement is not a modalist because he's distinguishing between the person of jesus and the person who is god alone so he's not a modalist but this doesn't determine whether he's a logos incarnationalist or a biblical unitarian both of those two christologies could equally well say this sentence so how do you tell whether clement of rome is a biblical unitarian or not you need to look a little bit more closely at some other things he says so Specifically, Theophanies, one of the biggest differences between biblical Unitarians and Logos Incarnationalists that they would argue about a lot in the works going back and forth between them is whether the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Jesus or whether the times where God appears through angels, those are just plain old angels, but are not the same person as uh, who will later be Jesus Christ. And so one thing that's interesting in the epistle to the Corinthians written by Clement. This is chapter 17. Moses was called faithful in all God's house, and through his instrumentality, God pushed Egypt with, punished Egypt with plagues and tortures. Yet he, though thus greatly honored, did not adopt loft, lofty language, but said, when the divine oracle came to him out of the bush, who am I that you send me? I am a man of feeble voice and a slow tongue. The divine oracle is another way of uh, talking about the Holy Spirit for, um, for uh, Clement. And you'll notice that he does not appear uh, does not attribute this appearance in the burnt, burning bush to the Son of God or to the pre-incarnate Jesus, but it is God appearing through a divine oracle. And in Justin Martyr, who is an example of a Logos incarnationalist, he attributes this exact same passage, this exact same scene, to the pre-incarnate Jesus. So you can see that that is a difference in the Christology of Clement and uh, Justin Martyr and other later Logos incarnationalists, which suggests that Clement of Rome is not a Logos incarnationalist. Another example, when Moses went up into the mount and abode there with fasting and humiliation, 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord said to him, Moses, Moses, uh, get you down quickly from hence. And uh, for the record, the Lord here is God the Father. If I pulled in the larger context, you can check that yourself. It's God the Father. And so he is attributing the person that um, Moses spoke to on Mount Sinai as God the Father. And a Logos incarnationalist would attribute that to uh, the second or the son of God or the Logos as who Moses was talking to there. So that's another example of a difference you can see between someone like Clement of Rome and someone like Justin Martyr, which strongly suggests that Clement of Rome is a biblical Unitarian. All right. Um, Another thing is to look at the doctrine of creation, right? That was one of those things that I said is how you can tell the difference between a biblical Unitarian and a Logos Incarnationalist is if they think that God created through the Son of God, then they're a Logos Incarnationalist. If they think that God creates without the pre-incarnate Jesus having some role in the process, then they're a biblical Unitarian. So here is Clement of Rome talking about creation. This is chapter 33. For the creator and Lord of all himself rejoices in his works. For by his infinitely great power, he established the heavens. And by his incomprehensible wisdom, he adorned them. He also divided the earth from the water which surrounds it and fixed upon it the immovable foundation of his own will. The animals also which are upon it, he commanded by his own word into existence. And so instead of the word being a person, the word here is God's own word, which he commands. So it's the word here is not a pre-incarnate Jesus. The word here is a command out of the mouth of God, the father. Another way that Clement calls God, the father is the creator and Lord of all. That is a title for God, the father in Clement. So he here talks about creation, even God, he even mentions God's word, but it is not a pre-incarnate somebody. It is a spoken uh, power by which God creates things which is, again, how a biblical Unitarian would interpret creation. Another example, chapter 27. By the word of his might he established all things, and by his word he can overthrow them. Who shall say unto him, what have you done? Or who shall resist the power of his strength? When and as he pleases, he will do all things, and none of the things determined by him shall pass away. All things are open before him, and nothing can be hidden from his counsel." The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. And there are no words or speeches of which the voices are not heard. So that, again, this is another example where God's word here is not a second person, or not the pre-incarnate Jesus, or a secondary God. The word here is just something that God the Father speaks, and it has power when it comes out from him. So again, this shows And I won't say it's conclusive. Um, We only have one epistle from Clement, and it's mostly not like a detailed exposition on Christology or theology. It's mostly just kind of an encouragement to the congregation there. But I think there are multiple clues that show that he is in the biblical Unitarian Christology, specifically how he talks about uh, theophanies and how he talks about creation. I'm dwelling on Clement quite a bit because he's a very early witness. He's one of the few people outside of the New Testament who we have writings from during the first century. And for this reason, he's an especially unique Uh, category of importance for determining which Christology was earliest. And I think all the signs in his letter, I mean, he clearly talks about God as one person. That is perfectly obvious. He's certainly not a Trinitarian by any stretch of the imagination. But to classify him between a biblical Unitarian and a Logos Incarnationalist, I I would say I'm about 90% sure that he's a biblical Unitarian. If we had more writings of him more explicitly on the subject, we could maybe be more sure, but there are multiple clues that point him in that direction. I'll leave Clement at that. So we've got Clement of Rome, and that epistle to the Corinthians is written sometime after the death of Peter and Paul, because it mentions them having been dead, which is about 65 or 64 AD. And it is most scholars agree written sometime before the persecutions that happen um, in 96 AD. So it's sometime in that period but it could be it could be even earlier than some of the other books that are in the New Testament, which is interesting. And Clement also seems to have personally known Peter and Paul so he's a very um, important witness to early Christian teaching in that sense. And so, like I said, I'm not going to give him a 100% certain classification. I'll give him about a 90% certain classification, but I would say that he is most likely an early witness to a biblical Unitarian Christology in the second half of the first century. All right. I'm going to talk about Justin Martyr. I'm going to say that Justin Martyr witnesses to biblical Unitarianism, even though he is not a biblical Unitarian himself. I'll get to Justin Martyr's own Christology later in the presentation, but he talks about biblical Unitarianism in his book, A Dialogue with Trifo. Uh, Dialogue with Trifo is written sometime in the 150s AD, and it records a debate that uh, Justin Martyr had with Trifo, a Jewish non-Christian, and some of Trifo's friends. Um, Trifo says... For when you say that Christ, that this Christ existed as God before the ages, then that He submitted to be born and became man, yet that He is not man of men, this assertion appears to me to not be merely paradoxical but also foolish. So Trifo is describing what Justin has described about his own theology, um, and Trifo is saying that you, Justin Martyr, describe this Christ as a pre-existent, and it says. As God in capital G in most manuscripts, I think this would be better interpreted as a God or as divine. Probably a God is actually the best way to interpret this. So, this Jewish trifo is saying, you know, we never, we don't expect the God to, or expect the Christ to be a God uh, who pre existed before all ages. It seems paradoxical and foolish. Um, just in response to that, I know that the statement does appear to be paradoxical, especially to those of your race who are ever unwilling to understand or to perform the requirements of God. The proof that this man is the Christ of God does not fail, though I be unable to prove that he existed formally as son of the maker of all things, being God, or again, I would say a God, and was Mm -hmm. born a man by the Virgin. But since I have certainly proved that this man is the Christ of God, whoever he be, even if I do not prove that he pre-existed, in this, Uh, last matter alone is it just to say that I have erred, and not to deny that he is the Christ, though it should appear that he was born a man of men, and nothing more is proved than this, that he has become Christ by election. For there are some, my friends, of our race who admit that he is Christ, while holding him to be a man of men, with whom I do not agree, nor would I, even though most of those who now have the same opinions as myself should say so. Since we are enjoined by Christ himself to put no faith in human doctrines, but in those proclaimed by the blessed prophets and taught by himself. So what Justin is saying here, I'm really trying to prove to you Jewish people that this Jesus is the Christ. And uh, uh, Justin is very confident that he can prove that Jesus was the Christ. But he says, I might not be able to prove that Jesus existed as God before all ages, but I am happy to prove that he's just the Messiah. And he so even so that says that Justin did not think believing in the preexistent divinity of Jesus was a requirement of salvation. He is happy to just prove to the, his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's all that he really wants to prove or really needs to prove. He would like to prove the preexistent divinity of Jesus, but that's sort of like a secondary issue for him. And even more than that, Justin admits that there are some of our race, that is to say Christians, Christianity was considered basically a race back then, um, who admit that Jesus is the Christ, holding him to be a man of men. So Justin knows Christians, and he's not saying like that heretical group of Christians over there, he's saying Christians of his own race, and I would think that this even probably means that there are some Christians that Justin goes to church with who hold this opinion that he is a man of men who gets appointed or elected as Christ. Um, He makes a small argument that we should put no faith in human doctrines, which is an argument why we should believe that Jesus was uh, divine and not just merely a human. But he also admits most of those who have the same opinions of myself should say so. So I think he's saying that most of the people of his race actually hold the Messiah, Jesus, to be a man of men. But he doesn't agree with them, even though most say so. I've heard some other people translate this or argue that he's saying, even if most Christians didn't believe in the pre existent divinity of Jesus. Although I have to say, at least in this translation, the most plausible way to read it is that Justin is saying, even though most Christians don't believe in the pre existent deity of Jesus, I do because I think that we shouldn't put faith in human doctrines. So Justin Martyr is both witnessing to biblical Unitarianism saying that there are biblical Unitarians in his own race, probably even in his own church, that they are saved, and they might even be a majority of the Christians that he knows. He's also seemingly connecting this with sort of Jewish thinking, because he says that Um, you know, people of your race are not as good at understanding God. And he'll even later go on in other passages to say that Greek converts make better Christians than Jewish converts. And so he actually thinks that a Jewish way of thinking is superior, or a a Greek uh, Gentile way of thinking is superior to a Jewish way of thinking. All right. Trifo responds to this, those who affirm him to have been a man and to have been anointed by election and then to have become Christ appear to me to speak more plausibly than you who hold those opinions which you express. For we all expect that the Christ will be a man of men. But if this man appears to be Christ, he must certainly be known as a man of men. So uh, Trifo is saying that the Jewish expectation is a human Messiah who gets anointed as the Christ. All right, so we have Justin Martyr. Not he's not a Biblical Unitarian himself, but he's witnessing to Biblical Unitarians, perhaps even admitting that there are a majority of Christians in his own church or among his own race sometime in the early 150s AD. All right, so I'm going to move on to someone named Theodotus of Byzantium. Theodotus maintains that Jesus was a mere man born of a virgin, according to the counsel of the Father. He subsequently, at his baptism in Jordan, received Christ, who came from above and descended upon him in the form of a dove. And this was the reason why miraculous powers did not not operate within him prior to the manifestation in him of that spirit which descended. But among the followers of Theodotus, some are disposed to think that this man was never made God, whereas others maintain that he was made God, or I should say a God or divine after the resurrection from the dead. So this is a work by Hippolytus, He's talking about what he, this person that whom he views as a heretic, Theodotus. Theodotus maintains the virgin birth, right? So that means that he's reading the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and affirming the virgin birth, that the Christ Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The reason why Jesus is the Christ is that he gets anointed with the Holy Spirit. This is what enables him to do miracles. And some, like Theodotus, think that. Jesus never really gets made uh, into a God or never really gets made divine, whereas some of the followers of Theodotus thinks he gets made a God or divine. And really, what divine or a God sort of meant back then, when we modern English speakers hear the word God, we think the creator of the universe, and we don't really have any other use of the word God. But back then, God could, it really almost means kind of like a saint, basically a person who's been exalted to heaven and has heavenly power and authority in heaven. And that is, it's really not that different to what a Catholic or an Orthodox person would say about a saint now or the Virgin Mary now. And uh, that you could call this human divinization or theosis or something like that. Um, and so some Theodotans seem to not believe that, some do, uh, is what we get from Hippolytus. All right, we learned more about Theodotus and one of his friends named Ardaman in um, Eusebius, he's writing in the early 300s, um, and just as a timestamp, Pope Victor, who gets mentioned in this passage, was the bishop of Rome from 189 AD to 199 AD. All right, so this is Eusebius talking, for he critic- and he is he's quoting someone who's writing earlier than him. So Eusebius is quoting someone else, for he, the person Eusebius is quoting, criticizes as a late innovation the above-mentioned heresy, which teaches that the Savior was a mere man, because they were attempting to magnify it as ancient, having given in his works many other arguments in refutation of their blasphemous falsehood, he adds the following words, for they say that all the early teachers and the apostles received and taught what they now declare, And that the truth of the gospel was preserved until the times of victor who is the 13th bishop of rome from peter but that from his successor zephyrinus the truth had been corrupted and what they say might be plausible if first of all the divine scriptures did not contradict them But there are writings of certain brethren older than the times of Victor, I refer to Justin, Miltiades, and Tatian, and Clement, that's Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome, who I quoted earlier, and many others, and all of whose works Christ is spoken of as God. How then, since the opinions held by the church has been preserved for so many years, can its preaching have been delayed as they affirm until the times of Victor? And how is it that they are not ashamed to speak thus falsely of Victor, knowing well that he cut off from communion Theodotus the cobbler, the leader and father of this God-denying apostasy, and the first to declare that Christ was a mere man? So what's going on here? there are these Christians, Theodotus and another guy named Arteman, who are teaching biblical Unitarian Christology, right, that Christ is a man of men, and they are teaching this in Rome. And then sometime in the 190s, I think, this, there is an um, opposing theology in Rome that is criticizing biblical Unitarianism, and they're arguing about which of these two theologies is older, And the biblical Unitarians are like, why are you getting rid of us? This is the same theology that's been taught in Rome this whole time. And the people who are opposing biblical Unitarian theology are like, what are you talking about? We know people who are older than um, Pope Victor, who have been teaching the Logos Incarnation theology. And he does mention Justin, Miltiades, Tatian, and Clement of Alexandria, all of which who are Logos Christologists. And he's saying, they're older than what you're talking about. What I think is happening is that I think that there were actually different geographic concentrations of the different theologies. I think biblical Unitarianism was strong in Rome, and I think it was also strong in Syria and especially the eastern fringe of the empire. But I think Logos Christology was common in Alexandria and now what we would call Turkey and Greece. So I think that what happened is that these two different Christologies sort of became common in different geographical regions but then when they encountered each other they're like i'm older and you you are new and then the other one's like no i'm old and you are new and i think that they could kind of both be right in the sense that you could be from one or the other place and not really encounter the other theology very much and so what they're having an argument about which is older But I should say, if you want to doubt the Theodotus' claim that this was the original teaching of Rome, you have to remember that when they're arguing that their teaching is the teaching that's been taught in Rome up until the 190s AD, they are arguing that inside Rome. And so it at least gives credence to what they're saying that they're when they're like, hey, everyone here has taught this, that they're in that same place. And what is also interesting is that the Logos Incarnation Christologists, who get quoted Justin Miltiades, Tatian, and Clement, none of them are Roman bishops. Justin, for a while, taught in Rome. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly when that would have been. Um, but it seems like the what's interesting is that he can't come up with any bishops of Rome who taught a Logos Incarnation Christology. And like I already argued, Clement of Rome, who's the second or third bishop of Rome, seems to be a biblical Unitarian. So I think that this is an interesting timeline piece of how long biblical Unitarianism was common or the predominant teaching in Rome, probably up until the 190s or right about 200 AD. Um, So I'm going to put Artemis and Theodotus on this timeline as witnesses or examples of biblical Unitarians in the 190s AD. All right, so I'm going to quote Novation Novation is not a biblical Unitarian, but again, he is a witness about biblical Unitarianism. He's writing in about 250 AD, again, in Rome. They who say that Jesus Christ is the Father argues as follows. Again, he's actually, the first thing that he argues against is modalism, and then he argues against biblical Unitarianism. So the first thing he says is a statement against modalists, not against biblical Unitarians. They who say that Jesus Christ is the Father argues as follows. If God is one and Christ is God, Christ is the Father, since God is one. If Christ be not the Father, because Christ is God the Son, there appear to be two gods introduced, contrary to the Scriptures. And they who contend that Christ is man only conclude, on the other hand, thus, if the Father is one and the Son another, but the Father is God and Christ is God, then there is not one God, but two gods are at once introduced, the Father and the Son. And if God is one, by consequence, Christ must be a mere man, so that rightly the Father may be the one God. Thus, indeed, the Lord is, as it were, crucified between two thieves. And thus, from either side, he receives a sacrilegious reproaches of such heretics as these. So you'll notice Novation is arguing against two different Christologies. He's arguing against modalism on one side of, the, of Jesus and against biblical Unitarianism on the other side of Jesus. And one thing I'll note is that you can tell that the antagonism between the different Christologies increases over time. Like Justin Martyr, like I already quoted, when he references biblical Unitarians, he references them as other people in his church with whom he disagrees, but he's relatively nice about them. Uh, By the time of Novation, 100 years later, Novation is criticizing biblical Unitarians as sacrilegious heretics. So the level of tolerance between the different communities is um, uh, dissolving, I'll say, and they're increasingly viewing each other as heretical. Um, But I'll also add one uh, one of the criminals crucified next to Jesus was actually righteous. So maybe Novation didn't use exactly the best example here. So, Novation witnesses to biblical Unitarianism in Rome in 250 AD. So, even though the biblical Unitarians seem to have been kicked out of the main Roman church sometime around the year 200, they're clearly still a presence that Novation has to deal with. And in fact, Novation's book on the Trinity which is actually, that's not even what Novation called it. That's a later title for that book. But Novation spends most of his time in that book criticizing biblical Unitarians and refuting their arguments. So it's not just like an offhand comment. They seem to be an active presence that he feels a strong need to polemically refute. So I would suggest that the biblical Unitarians are probably still in Rome and probably still causing a pain to the Logos Incarnationalists who have kind of taken over the main theology of Rome sometime around the year 200 or 190, and that Novation is still having to argue against them. So again, that witnesses to biblical Unitarianism specifically in Rome around 250 AD. All right, there is another person, Paul Samosata. He is the Bishop of Antioch, and he is Bishop from 260 to 272 AD. Now, he was appointed as the bishop, not of like some schismatic biblical Unitarian church that's different from the main, you know, Proto-Orthodox church. He was appointed the Proto-Orthodox Bishop of Antioch, and the Bishop of Antioch at the Council of Nicaea is one of the three most important positions in the church. So this is one of the highest ranking positions right up there with the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria. And the Bishop of Antioch is a biblical Unitarian. As far as we can tell, he had believed that his whole life and was appointed as the bishop with this theology. So in 260 AD, when he's appointed, this must have been at least an acceptable enough position for a bishop to get appointed. Because before you're a bishop, you have to be a priest and other things, and you have to get kind of collectively voted upon by the other priests or something like that in your bishopric before you become the bishop. So the fact that he was even appointed as bishop shows the credibility of this theology at that time. Although I will say, over the course of his life, there are councils that are held against him where he gets condemned as a heretic Although it's seemingly not within his own community, it's seemingly the bishops of other communities that are trying to get him disposed. And the first time that they try to depose him, he, uh, they rule against him, but they don't have the authority to kick him out because he's popular in his own city. And there's also a really interesting political environment going on. The Roman Empire is falling apart. And Paul Samosata allies him with a queen called Zenobia, who's trying to build a rival kingdom to the Roman Empire in Syria and the Middle East. And so Paul Samosata allies himself with this new kingdom that eventually comes back to bite him because the Roman Empire eventually quashes that rebellion. And at the same time that that rebellion gets quashed, Paul Samosata disappears. Probably he was killed. And then the Um, Logos incarnation Christologists are able to retake over the bishopric of Antioch and appoint someone who is not a biblical Unitarian. Um, But some quotes from Paul Samosata, and I have a video about Paul Samosata. His story is fascinating. If you want to learn more about it, I've got a video that you could watch. Anyway, some quotes from him. Jesus was not before Mary, but received from her the origin of his being, right? Perfectly clear, no pre-existence. Christ did wonders according to grace. So again, he his miracles were not some divine power native to himself, but that God the Father is working through him. The Lord was divinized. The word here is apotheosis. So just as some of those theodotans believe that Jesus became a God or became divine or theosified after his death, um, Paul of Samosata also says stuff like that. A bigger quote from Paul of Samosata. Having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, he received the title of the Christ, suffering in accordance with his nature. Notice how he only has one nature here, a human nature, working wonders in accordance with grace. So his wonder working is a power that's given to him. For in fixity and resoluteness of character, he likened himself to God, and having kept himself free from sin, was united with God, and was empowered to grasp, as it were, the power and authority of wonders. By these, he was shown to possess over and above the will one and the same activity, energy, with God, and won the title Redeemer and Savior of our race. So Jesus is a human being through moral character and will who unites himself with God and does powers by God working in and through him because of his own moral perfection. So that's a a clear example of biblical Unitarian Christology. Athanasius, writing about Paul Samosata, says... Since the Samosatin held that the son was not before Mary, but received from her the origin of his being, therefore they pronounced him a heretic, for they directed all their thoughts to destroy the devices of the Samosatin, and to show that the son was before all things, and that instead of becoming God from man, he being God had put on a servant's form, and being word had become flesh, as John says. This is how they dealt with the blasphemies of Paul." And I think Athanasius here is actually fairly accurately describing Paul of theology. Basically, for Paul of the Messiah is a man who becomes God. For Athanasius, the Messiah is a God who becomes man. That's the clearest way of stating the difference. All right, so we've got Paul of in like the 260s and early 270s as Bishop of Antioch. And his followers don't go away immediately after he's killed. His followers are actually condemned at the Council of Nicaea as still existing as a relatively noticeable contingent of the church, even after Paul Samosata is gone. All right, the last main biblical Unitarian that I'll talk about is Photinus of Galatia. He was the bishop of Sirmium, a city in modern-day Serbia, or Sirmium in Serbia, and he was excommunicated at his own council in 351 AD. So some people think that like the Trinity got taught at the Council of Nicaea, and ever thereafter, the church was always Trinitarian. That's like false in so many ways, I don't know how to say it. Photinus was a biblical Unitarian who gets appointed as a bishop of an important city even after the Council of Nicaea. But he is, again, condemned. And so here are the condemnations at this council. And I should say this council was convened by Arians. These people who are condemning him are Arian Logos Christologists, not Trinitarians. Um, So some people, you know, conflate biblical Unitarianism with Arianism. Arianism and biblical Unitarianism didn't get along very well. So here are some of the anathemas at that council. For whoever says that according to foreknowledge, the Son is before Mary, and not that generated from the Father before all ages, he was with God, and that through him all things were originated, be he anathema. One thing that I got taught as a biblical unitarian growing up is that the Son only exists in the foreknowledge of God and didn't preexist in actuality, and that is exactly what Photinus says, which is even the exact same word, very interesting to me. All right, whoever says that the Son from Mary is man only, be he anathema. Whoever explains, I, God, the first, and I, the last, and besides me, there is no other God, Isaiah 44, 6, which is said for the denial of idols and of gods that are not, to the not to the denial, or whoever says that is to the denial of the only begotten before ages God, as Jews do, be he anathema. So again, biblical Unitarianism gets compared to Jewish theology in this anathema, and that sort of connection between biblical Unitarian theology and Jewish theology is I would say there's a growing rise of anti-Judaism, and even maybe you could say anti-Semitism, although I don't mean to be too anachronistic with that word. That is part of the reason why the Logos Christologists dislike biblical Unitarianism, is that it's a little bit too Jewish uh, um, for their liking. Whoever says that, let us make man, was not said by the Father to the Son, but by God to himself, be he anathema. So all those things you can kind of get by criticism a um, a understanding of what Photinus believed. So he's sort of, I will say, the last great, you know, at least great in terms of an important person whose name we know, biblical Unitarian in the early church period, and he gets excommunicated in 351 AD. So that sort of brings to a close biblical Unitarianism. But when we look, we can see Clement, um, Justin Martyr talking about it, Theodotus, Novation talking about it, Paul of Masada, Photinus in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries. So there is a pretty clear um, continuity of this theology uh, attested to in multiple places, going all the way back to apostolic times. So it would be really hard to argue that this Christology was a late innovation, as some people tried to argue. There seems to be pretty clear evidence of this. And so it at least is a contender of what should be considered the apostolic Christology and the Christology that is appropriate to the New Testament. In other words, to beat biblical Unitarianism, you would have to have even more evidence on your side that this that your Christology is as early, if not earlier, and has more people attesting to it than biblical Unitarianism does. But biblical Unitarianism at least passes the test of what could plausibly be the earliest Christology. All right. All right. I'm gonna talk briefly about The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a very interesting book. The Shepherd of Hermas is sort of, uh, it's a book that um, writes and describes a angelic vision that this prophet in the church of Rome named Shepherd, named Hermas receives. And that uh, it, it's sort of trippy. If you think the book of Revelation is trippy, The Shepherd of Hermas is even trippier. Uh, and again, it's in that style of an angelic vision. Um, and you don't get a lot of clear Christology in the Shepherd of Hermes. It's mostly about moral behavior and stuff like that. But there is some you know, theology that creeps through. And, so, and it's written in the early part of the second century. It mentions Clement of Rome, or at least probably that's the Clement that it's mentioning. So it's also an early Christian witness of theology. So here's what it says, Fismilitude um, chapter six, the holy preexistent spirit, that created every creature God made to dwell in flesh, which he chose. This flesh, accordingly, in which the Holy Spirit dwelt, was nobly subject to that spirit, walking religiously and chastely, and in no respect defiling the spirit. And accordingly, after living excellently and purely, and after laboring and cooperating with the spirit, and having in everything acted vigorously and courageously, along with the Holy Spirit, he assumed it as a partner with it. For this conduct of the flesh pleased him, because it was not defiled on the earth while having the Holy Spirit. He took, therefore as fellow counselors his son and the glorious angels, in order that in this flesh, in order that this flesh, which had been subject to the body without a fault, might have some place of tabernacle, and that it might not appear that the reward of its servitude had been lost. for the flesh that has been found without spot or defilement in which the Holy Spirit dwelt will receive a reward. So what it's talking about here, So there's this Holy Spirit which pre exists, and God created sort of everything through the Holy Spirit. Um, God causes this Holy Spirit to dwell in a human. The human being cooperates and acts virtuously and righteously while the Holy Spirit is within that person. And then that person is made a partner with God. I think that's a reference to the exaltation and enthronement of Jesus after his uh, death and resurrection, and that he is sort of given a reward. So it's interesting. I think this is almost like a biblical Unitarian Christology, but from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. But in other parts of the letter, I'll say there's some other things. All right, so this is 9th Similitude, chapter 1. I wish to explain to you what the Holy Spirit that spake with you in the form of the church showed you, for the that Spirit is the Son of God. So it's calling the Holy Spirit the Son of God, which... No Christology that I'm aware of is very comfortable doing that anymore. Uh, so, what in the world is the? How in the world could the Holy Spirit be the Son of God? And then a little bit later, the Son of God is older than all His creatures, so that He was a fellow Counselor with the Father in His work of creation. For this reason, He is old. So, what I think that the Christology of the Shepherd of Hermes is is that there's sort of this really strong Holy Spirit Son of God person who comes in and dwells in the human Jesus and maybe doesn't even get crucified with him or something like that. And In other words, this might be somewhat similar to what I classified as a Gnostic Christology, even though Shepherd of Hermas seems to be in the Proto-Orthodox Church. So like I said, these boundaries are a little blurry. So I'm not going to like 100% claim Shepherd of Hermas as an early attestation to biblical Unitarian Christology. I think it's more what you could call a spirit possessionist Christology, where there is a pre-existent second character but it's the Holy Spirit, not like the Logos. And the Son of God and the flesh in which it's dwelled seem to be distinguished. It doesn't seem like the human who is possessed by the Spirit is the Son of God. It seems that the Son of God is the preexistent Holy Spirit. So anyway, that this doesn't really fit in any of the three categories that I'm talking about. And it's a testament to that there was you know, more diversity even than I'm able to really capture in this presentation in early Christianity. So that would place the shepherd, you know, he's like either late second, late first century, early second century. So um, it's a little bit interesting to think about. Anyway, I'm going to talk about the history of modalism now. I'm going to do this relatively briefly. So this is Tertullian. Tertullian's not a modalist, based he's criticizing modalists in this book. He, main, he that is Praxeus, maintains that there is only one Lord, the creator almighty of the world in order that out of this doctrine of the unity, he may fabricate a heresy. He says that the father himself came down into the virgin, was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Jesus Christ. So Tertullian is criticizing this modalist idea that the father becomes incarnate, Um, and that's in, uh, he's writing about 213 AD. And there's also another person named Sibelius, who you can kind of put in the same period. So somewhere in like the 210s is the first attestation of modalism. Um, Hippolytus writes a book against Noetus. He says, some others are secretly introducing another doctrine who have become disciples of one Noetus, who was a native of Spirna. He alleged that the Christ was the father himself and that the father himself was born and suffered and died. So we get another attestation to this theology that's teaching that the Father Himself is the one who suffers and dies, and um, he says that this came from Smyrna. And uh, Tertullian, I didn't include it in the quote that I included, but he Tertullian also says that this theology seems to have come from Asia, which is Western Turkey, as we would call it, and Smyrna is in Western Turkey. All right. So we get this attestation from Tertullian and Hippolytus, sort of in the early third century, of this Father becomes incarnate sort of Christology. And Novation, whom I already read that quote where he criticized people who say that the Father becomes God, or the Father becomes incarnate. So we have these attestations in the early half of the third century, but we don't have any attestations of modalist Christology before about 210 AD. And what's interesting is all these attestations appear at a relatively similar period in time, and they attribute it to uh, originating in one particular geography. So I think that this is what it looks like when a new theology comes onto the scene, is that you don't see it earlier, and you see it all at once, and it seems to be localized in place and spreading from that place. So I think that you could say that this is a later development of Christology and does not originate with the apostles. So I think you could rule out modalism as an apostolic teaching, but you do have to admit it's there in the anti-Nicene period, just at the beginning of the third century. All right, so now I'm going to describe Logos Incarnation Christology, but before I do, I want to sort of start at the end, so to speak, kind of for purpose of contrast. Um, I'm going to describe uh, what is the Trinitarian consensus. Basically, this is the theology that later becomes the standard of Trinitarian orthodoxy, And I think you start to see this Trinitarian consensus in the late 4th and early 5th centuries. And the Trinitarian consensus is something like this. I think there are nine bullet points that you could use to describe it. And again, I tried to have this list be as short as possible, but that would still exclude anyone who should be excluded from Orthodox Trinitarian consensus. So first point, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all fully and equally essentially divine. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all separate persons or instances of the one single divinity. The Trinity has one energy, one activity, and one united will. The Father alone is uncaused, but he is the cause of the Son and the Spirit. The Father necessarily causes the Son and the Holy Spirit in accordance with his will, but not as an active will. So in other words, when the Father begets the Son before time, this is like not a act of the father's will, because that would seemingly be a way that you could argue that the son was created if it was done by the will of the father. But it's not like against his will. It's not like, you know, it's happening to him in some way that he doesn't like. But again, there's this very um, clear uh, goal of making sure the son is not a creature. Um, Bullet point six is similar. This causation is not a form of creation, but is eternal and not temporal. Therefore, all persons are equally eternal. So this idea of eternal generation. The father begets the son and spirates or breathes the spirit. So in other words, you have these two persons that are coming from the one person. The Son's getting begotten and the Spirit's getting breathed. And that's how you can tell the difference between the Son and the Spirit. Because if they were both eternally generated and both equally divine, it would be hard to distinguish them. So you need some some way of distinguishing Father and Son. And the way that you do it is that the Father begets the Son and breathes out the Spirit. And those are two different forms of causation. The Father alone is God in himself. The Greek there is autotheos and the Son and Spirit receive their divinity from the Father, and the three persons together constitute only one God. It's a little bit unclear how they constitute one God, but they definitely do constitute one God uh, somehow or another in the Trinitarian consensus. So when I'm going to be arguing that you don't see Trinitarianism in the early centuries of Christianity, what I mean by Trinitarianism is a theology that could agree with all nine bullet points on this list, And any theology that doesn't agree with these nine bullet points is heretical by later Trinitarian standards. And that's, I think, a very important point. I noticed that when some Trinitarians train and argue for the early existence of the doctrine of the Trinity, they basically lower the bar of what the definition of Orthodox Trinitarianism is, so that these early church fathers can jump over it, but they lower the bar so low that other heretics could jump over the same bar. I'm trying to set the bar not too high. I'm trying to set it, I think this is the right height. For what later thereafter, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church would deem as a sort of minimally necessary list of propositional statements that would constitute a fully Orthodox Trinitarian. And so if you fall short on any one of these nine bullet points, you are a heretic by the sort of late 4th, early 5th century Trinitarian consensus. All right, so... I want to then back up and I want to describe what I'll call second and third century two-stage logos theology. And this is what I uh, this is sort of a expanded definition of what I called logos theology at the beginning of this presentation. So, in this theology, only God the Father is fully divine, and fully divine includes traits like transcendent, all-powerful, eternal, invisible, incomprehensible, unbegotten, etc. Those are the traits that set apart the Father as fully divine. The Son is divine and is God or a God, but has a different level or quality of divinity. He can appear within creation as opposed to being transcendent above creation. He lacks some of the powers of the Father. He began to exist kind of at a certain point in time. He's visible, he's intelligible, and he's begotten, etc. So the Son is divine and is God but he's not quite as divine or quite of the same exalted divine status as the Father. The Son has his own will, and that will is aligned with that of the Father, right? In Orthodox Trinitarianism, all members of the Trinity have one will together, but in Logos Christology, um, the Son has his own will but is so morally perfect that his will aligns with the Father's will. But you can't be subordinate unless you have a will that you're subordinating to someone else's will, So they technically have two different wills. They're just in cooperation. The Father has his own internal logos or wisdom with him eternally. So God the Father has a logos inside his own mind eternally. It's just not a separate person. Okay, so even though the Father has an internal logos, at a certain point in time, often sort of like the beginning of time or the beginning of creation, are often associated when the Father says, let there be light in Genesis the word comes out of him and there now is a begotten secondary logos that is like its own person while the father still has like the internal logos in his mind. So there's an internal logos and an external logos. And the external logos is now the son or a second and distinct God from the first God. And they actually do use that phrase second God a lot to describe their own theology. I'm not like attributing this phrase to them. Multiple of the people I'll be talking about called Jesus a second God. The Son is a create is created by God in a way that's sort of unique from all other creation. So it's like God creates the Son, and then everything else gets created by or through the Son. And the one true highest God is the unipersonal God, the Father. So the 2nd century and 3rd century two-stage Logos theologians believe that there's only one highest god but it is the unipersonal god the father as opposed to the trinity altogether counting as one god all right so justin martyr um justin martyr is probably the first clearest attestation to this two-stage logos christology again i'm quoting from dialogue with Trifo, which is written sometime in the 150s ad he who appeared to abraham under the oak in mamra is god um, and I should say, I think as better said as a God sent with the two angels in his company to judge Sodom by another who remains ever in the super celestial places invisible to all men holding personal intercourse with none whom we believe to be the maker and father of all things. I shall attempt to persuade you that there is another god and lord subject to the maker of all things, who is also called an angel because he announces to men whatsoever the maker of all things, above whom there is no other god wishes to announce to them. So basically, there's one big god who is ever in super celestial places, invisible, cannot directly interact, well, maybe not cannot, does not directly interact with people in creation. And that is the maker and father of all things. So you've got this super divine God. And then there is another God, a second God, a distinct God, who is subject to the maker of all things. And he can also be called an angel because he's like God's special messenger who comes and does the things that the highest God wishes him to do. So God the Father can't appear to human beings But the secondary God, this like angel God, can appear to human beings because he doesn't have these traits of invisibility and transcendence that the ultimate God does. So that's what Justin Martyr is trying to persuade uh, Trifo to believe. Um, In his first Apology, which was also written in the 150s AD or maybe the 160s, I think he's writing to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, trying to persuade him to stop persecuting Christians. Um, Justin says, our teacher of these things is Jesus Christ having learned that he is the son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place and the prophetic spirit in the third, we will prove. For they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we will give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. For they do not discern the mystery that is herein, to which as we make it plain to you, we pray you to give heed. So basically, Justin Martyr has this hierarchy of three things. There's God, the father in first place. Jesus in second place and the Holy Spirit in third place. And I should also say that Justin Martyr thinks that the Holy Spirit is one of the things that gets created by the Logos. So the the Holy Spirit is like not even a second, not even a second God, it's a third God or a tertiary level on the hierarchy after the son who created him. And uh, that the one true God, the only God, the eternal God, the creator of all, is Jesus's father. It's not the trinity altogether. There's this hierarchy of three things, a triad, you could say, but not an eternal coexistent co-equal trinity. All right, so Justin is the first clearest detailed example of this theology, and he's writing in the 150s AD in his earliest writings. All right, are there any examples of this theology before Justin Martyr? And one close example might be the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle of Barnabas was sometimes believed to have been written by the uh, Barnabas that's in the New Testament, although very few scholars nowadays would agree with that. Most think that the Epistle of Barnabas was written in the early second century, but it does appear to be written before the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, because it doesn't seem to have knowledge of those events, and it describes some of the history of Israel, and seemingly it does, it leaves that out, which suggests that it was before the Bar Kokhba revolt. So, but it does know that the temple was destroyed. So it was written after 70 A.D., but before like the events of the 130s A.D. So we know it's sandwiched between that time, but we don't know exactly when during that time. Um, So there is a very telling quote from the epistle of Barnabas. And further, my brethren, if the Lord endured to suffer for our soul, he being Lord of all the world, to whom God said at the foundation of the world, let us make man after our image, after our likeness. So we have God talking to the pre-incarnate Jesus at the foundation of the world, and he says, let us make. So that is, I would say, a clear and basically unambiguous uh, reference to the pre-existence of Jesus. But I'll say in the Epistle of Barnabas, we don't get much else clear about his Christology. It's not like Justin. Justin is very clear. Some people who say that the early church fathers, are like, yeah, well, they're not really clear about what they think. Justin Martyr was a trained philosopher who is incredibly clear about what he thinks. So don't try and dumb down Justin Martyr's clarity in order to try and classify him as orthodox. Justin Martyr was way, way clearer on his Christology than most Trinitarians are. It's just they don't like what he said when he was being clear. But the Epistle of Barnabas is, it doesn't have much other Christology other than this. So it's not like we get this two-stage logos idea clearly laid out or anything. All we can really tell is that there is a testament to pre-existence. So that puts a pre-existent Christology, and for now, I don't have any reason to suspect that the Epistle of Barnabas disagreed with Justin Martyr. I wish we had a little bit more clarity on what else other than pre-existence the Epistle of Barnabas um, believed in. But even then, for a Trinitarian, you'll notice that um, when he talks about God, he doesn't say God the Father, he just says God. So there's a unipersonal God who talks to the pre-existent Son. So it's not like he thinks that that the pre-existent Son is So I should say this isn't modalism or Trinitarianism. It does seem to be God talking to the Lord. So that seems to suggest a hierarchy, kind of like Justin Martyr. So I think that he's probably similar to Justin Martyr. It's just harder to tell. And it could be between anywhere from 70 AD to the 130s AD. Most scholars seem to think that it's kind of in that early second century period, like the 120s or the 130s. All right. Athenagoras is another early testament to this two stage idea. I didn't, Justin has a quote where he explains how the Logos comes out of the Father. I didn't include this one because I wanted to quote someone else just to kind of give a fuller sense of this theology outside of Justin Martyr. But this is a, I think, a clear statement of how in this two stage Logos Christology, there are two stages of the Logos. Um, Athenagoras is writing also in the 160s, I believe, also to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, um, and seems to be more or less a peer of Justin Martyr. For we acknowledge also a Son of God. Nor let anyone think it, it that it let, nor let anyone think it ridiculous that God should have a Son. But the Son of God is the Logos of the Father in idea and in operation. For after the pattern of Him and by Him were all things made, the Father and the Son being one. A trinitarian would be like, well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, but read a little further, and the Son being in the Father and the Father and the Son in oneness of power and oneness and power of spirit, the understanding and reason of the Father is the Son of God. Understanding there is noose and reason is logos. But if it occurs to you to inquire what is meant by the Son, he is the first product of the Father, not as having been brought into existence, for from the beginning, God who is the eternal mind, the eternal noose, has the logos in himself being from eternity instinct with Logos. But inasmuch as he came forth to be the idea and energizing power of all material things, the prophetic spirit also agrees with our statements. The Lord, it says, made me the beginning of his ways for his works. That's Proverbs 8.22. So this is a pretty clear description. And we get really clear description, even clearer descriptions in other places of how this two-stage Logos idea works. The father eternally has an internal mind or an internal wisdom or an internal logos. And then at the beginning of creation, he creates the external logos and then makes everything through the external logos. That's like some sort of copy or derivative emanation of the internal logos, something like that. And that's what the second God is, is it's like the second production of it's an externalized product or copy of the internal word of the Father, or something like that. Other second century Logos incarnation theologians, uh, we've got Tatian sometime in like the 160s to 180s. He was a student of Justin Martyr, Miltiades, sometime in the 160s. Melito of Sardis, kind of 160 to 180. Theophilus of Antioch, 169 to 183. Athenagoras, sometime in the 160s or 170s. Irenaeus of Lyon sometime from 177 to 202 is when he's writing, Clement of Alexandria, 190 to 215. So we have all of these Logos Christologians who appear, and, uh, and when, I'm ta- when I'm talking about their dates, I'm not talking about when they're born. I'm talking about when their writings attest to their theology. So we get a pretty you know noticeable collection. What is that? That's seven people and I might have even left a couple examples out, but I'm mainly just including important theologians who we have books of and know their names. And so all of these people are in the second half of the second century. So I sometimes wonder, when did this Christology originate? The fact is, is that it's relatively geographically spread out by the end of the second century. We've got people from the Middle East to Turkey to Egypt to uh, Irenaeus is in southern uh, France. And so we've got this spread out theology, but we don't have any attestations of a clear logos theology in the first half of the second century, except for the Epistle of Barnabas, but even then, it's not very specific. So I tend to think that this pre existent logos idea was sort of forming in a vague way in the early half of the second century. And then Justin Martyr, who was a very highly philosophically trained convert to Christianity, and he probably converted to Christianity in the 130s or something like that. He then kind of takes his theological and philosophical training, and he had been trained as a Platonist Platonist philosopher, and he also studied from uh, Epicureans and Stoics and Aristotelians. So he knew a a lot of philosophy and a lot of pagan theology, And I think he maybe, I I don't think he invented the idea of the preexistence of Jesus. I think it was maybe around in his environment, although possibly pretty new, and that he develops this more philosophically sophisticated articulation of it, as well as a form of biblical exegesis, where you see the pre-incarnate Jesus as the angel of the Lord, So this combination of exegesis, where you see Jesus as an actual character in the Old Testament, not just prophesied about or foreshadowed in four types or something like that, but an actual character in the Old Testament. And then you mix this with some kind of platonic philosophical ideas that you could have gotten both from pagans and also, I'll say, from Philo of Alexandria, who was a Jewish uh, theologian in the first century. And I think that fusion of the theology and the philosophy was really probably pretty unique, and it might have originated with Justin himself, as far as we can tell. And then kind of downstream from him, there are a lot of other either converts or students of his who learn this theology, and it sort of begins to spread from there, and you start to get a lot of examples of it in the second half of the second century. That's my best guess as to what's happening. All right. Some people like to say, oh, Irenaeus is clearly a Orthodox Trinitarian. But what I think is really the case is Irenaeus is less clear about his own theology and spends a lot more of his time criticizing theologies that he disagrees with. Um, And so we don't get as clear of an articulation of Irenaeus' own positive theology of the Son of God or the Logos. Um, But we do get some hints, and I think that this is a pretty clear hint. Uh, so this is from Against Heresies, Book 2, Chapter 28, Paragraph 6. Even the Lord, the very Son of God, allowed that the Father alone knows the very day and hour of judgment, but of that day and at that hour knows no man, neither the Son, but the Father only. If then the Son was not ashamed to ascribe knowledge of that day to the Father only, neither let us be ashamed to reserve for God the greater questions which may occur to us, for no man is superior to his master." If anyone says to us, how then was the son produced by the father? We reply to him that no man understands his generation, which is in fact altogether indescribable. Neither Valentinus nor Marcion nor Saturninus nor Basilides, but the father only who begot and the son who was begotten. Since therefore his generation is unspeakable, those who strive to set forth generations and productions cannot be in their right mind. For that, a word is uttered at the bidding of thought and mind. All men indeed will understand. So, a couple of interesting things in this passage. First of all, um, uh, Irenaeus says that the Son, even in his divine nature, does not know things that the Father does. Normally, a Trinitarian will explain uh, the Father doesn't, or the, how the Son doesn't know the hour of his return, by saying that his human nature was ignorant, but perhaps his divine nature wasn't. Irenaeus doesn't go down that road. He just says the son doesn't know, but the father knows. It's a much clearer interpretation of the passage, I would say. So that seems to suggest a difference in omniscience, which would suggest a difference in the qualities of divinity. He also says that no man is superior to his master, again, attributing that to the relationship between the son to the father. So that's a clear subordination, which also suggests a differentiation in wills between the father and the son, and that the son's will is subordinate to the will of the father a technically heretical idea. And what is interesting is in Against Heresies, Irenaeus is often criticizing various Gnostic ideas that are sort of like emanations or various mythologies of how Jesus came to exist from one or another of these gods and these weird complicated Gnostic origin myths. And so he's sort of pushing back on this idea that you can tell this really complicated origin story of the son from the father. And he's saying that this is unspeakable but then he hints at a way of understanding it. For a word is uttered at the bidding of thought, and that I think is a clear reference to two-stage logos idea. Right, the thought exists in the father's mind, and then the word gets uttered. And uh, ter- or Irenaeus loves Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is one of his favorite theologians. He quotes Justin Martyr a lot, and his book Against Heresies is largely based on a work earlier written by Justin Martyr. So he's clearly aware of Justin Martyr and views him probably as his biggest theological influence. So I think the burden is on anyone who wants to prove that Irenaeus doesn't just agree with Justin Martyr in terms of his theology. And in this paragraph, which is about as clear as he gets as the generation of the sun, but again, he's trying to be a little coy on that subject to not sound too much like a Gnostic, but... The word gets uttered, which means the word comes out from God, and it is a bidding of the thought. So there's the thought within God the Father, and then the word that's external to God the Father. That's that same two-stage Logos idea in Justin Martyr and others. All right, Ignatius of Antioch. Some people might be like, Sam, 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 you clearly forgot Ignatius of Antioch. He's a clear attestation to the divinity or the deity of Christ in the apostolic period, and is clearly something close to a Trinitarian. So, I'll say a couple things about Ignatius of Antioch. Um, It really, really depends what Christology you get out of Ignatius, depending on which works of his you consider legitimate and which works you consider illegitimate. There's what's called the middle recension, or a middle group, a middle mid-sized group of seven letters. In this mid-sized group of seven letters, Jesus is called God multiple times, and there's incarnation language. But, This middle recension was largely constructed by a scholar named Lightfoot in the 1800s in England from various Greek fragments in various locations. It's not like there is any manuscript sitting on a shelf in some monastery or that it's ever been discovered where it's like, here are the seven letters and here's what they say. It was reconstructed by a scholar, and there are lots of reasons to be skeptical that this full seven-letter collection is authentic. There's a, I have a friend uh, named Nathan who actually did a really good presentation on this. There's actually been a lot of scholarship recently about the Ignatian epistles, and it's increasingly throwing doubt on the legitimacy of the middle recension, as it's called. Uh, but the, sh- the short three-letter collection, Jesus is never called God except for maybe kind of one time. Although it's interesting, the one time Jesus seemingly gets called God in the short recession is a time where he's not called that in the full seven-letter collection. So it's kind of complicated. And it survived in Aramaic and an Eastern monastery. So if you read the short recension, there is no theology that could be clearly labeling Ignatius as either a biblical Unitarian or a Logos Incarnationalist. He could be either one. It's not a very theological collection. And we do know that the works of Ignatius were sort of theological battlegrounds in later centuries where lots of people like to use Ignatius, who was a martyr and was very widely respected in early Christianity. And they would sort of insert their theology into Ignatius to try and bring him onto their side. And we have letters during the Arian controversy where they're quoting Ignatius back and forth with each other. And the Arians are like, look, Ignatius agrees with us. And then the other side is like, that letter is illegitimate or that paragraph isn't in my collection. He says this. And it sounds exactly like what each side believes. And so I think that the letters of Ignatius are just very um, I don't know uh, it, you cannot build a solid case for your Christology based off of the letters of Ignatius and it depends so much on all these disputes that I just don't think that he can be brought in as a clear witness for any side I should also say that there's a really wide date range even for the letters of Ignatius that do exist some people put as early as 180 or as 98 ad some people as late as 180 kind of the more standard consensus is between 105 and 140. I will say that I think one argument for a later dating of Ignatius is that one of the undisputed letters, or well, people even dispute this one, but one of the letters in the short recension is a letter to Polycarp, and Ignatius is talking to Polycarp, who is a fellow bishop, and Ignatius even seems to talk to Polycarp as if Ignatius is more important or elderly than Polycarp. And we know that Polycarp lived from 170 to 155 AD. We actually know that relatively clearly because there is a martyrdom of Polycarp that talks about how old he was and when he died. So we can date Polycarp relatively clearly. You are not allowed to be a bishop until the age of 30 in early Christianity. Most of the time, that rule sometimes got broken, but that was a pretty clear rule. And the polycarp seems to already be pretty important and pretty widely recognized, which suggests to me that he's probably at least 40 years old, probably more like 50 or 60 years old, which would put kind of an earliest time cap, in my opinion, of of the letter to polycarp being written at least after 120 AD, and more plausibly in 130 or 140 AD. So that's what I would say. Um, No one, uh, to build your case for an early Trinitarian Christology based off of Ignatius is to build your house on a house of, uh, to build your house on the sand. I'll just put it that way. And like, I'm not like trying to put Ignatius down. I'm pretty sure that there was an early Christian named Ignatius who was martyred and was a very brave witness to the faith. I don't want to take that away from him, but what's taking away from him is when people try and attribute beliefs to him falsely or letters to him falsely that he didn't write. I think that's how you're unfaithful to Ignatius, and I would love nothing more than to have more historical certainty about what Ignatius thought and believed, and the fact that it's sort of a historical mess is a great tragedy in in my eyes. I'm not like gleefully, you know, happy that we can't tell what Ignatius thought. I would love to know what Ignatius thought. I wish that we could trust the historical record more than we're able to. All right, so moving on from Ignatius, Um, Oh, here's, eh, I'll skip that quote. I've said enough about Ignatius for now. So Ignatius might be an early high crystal ocean, but it's just like really hard to tell. And it's hard to know when he's writing. So I'm just not going to include him in this analysis because I just don't think we can know. All right, I'll move on to Tertullian. Tertullian is the first person to use the phrase Trinity. He's writing in Latin, so he's saying Trinitas, and he refers it to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So some people are like, look, Tertullian clearly believes in the Trinity. We've got a Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they don't really stop and read everything that Tertullian wrote. And for the record, I have read everything that we have of Tertullians, um, some of it multiple times. I've even read books about Tertullian, and hopefully someday I'll even interview scholars about Tertullian. Uh, So you get a much clearer sense of his theology when you read everything he wrote instead of cherry-picking quotes here or there, but to cherry-pick some quotes about what he believed, here's some interesting quotes. For he could not have been the father previous to the son, nor judge previous to sin. For there was, however, a time when neither sin existed with him nor the son, the former of which was to constitute the Lord a judge and the later a father. Just as he became the father by the son and a judge by sin, so also did he become Lord by means of those things which he had made in order that they might serve him. So, this is a clear statement that the son comes into existence at a certain time and that the father was previously without a son and alone in uh, eternity past. So, that's clearly heretical. Um, This is a long quote. I'm not going to read it, but. Um, this is just a reference. What I'm going to say might sound really strange, but if you think what I'm saying is strange, here's the reference against Praxeus chapter 16. So Tertullian is wrestling some of the ideas that were around in Tertullian's time, especially from a guy named Marcion. Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament was a bad evil God and that the God of Jesus is actually a good God and that they're two different gods. Tertullian doesn't like that idea, Marcion would argue that some of the things that God does in the Old Testament are evil or that some of the traits that he displays like changing his mind or regretting that he made people or something like that are unbefitting of a true high God, so it must have been a bad God. Tertullian is responding to this theology. How does he respond? He doesn't try and argue that God in the Old Testament was perfect. What he argues is that you have to distinguish between the one highest God and the secondary God, and the secondary God is the pre-incarnate Jesus, And that the secondary God in the Old Testament sometimes made mistakes, sometimes didn't know everything because he was like a God in training and that he was becoming more and more godly in his pre-incarnate state and that his incarnation and the lessons he learned during the incarnation and his ascension, then he's finally like a perfect God. So basically, the mistakes of God in the Old Testament are because the pre-incarnate Jesus was a God, the God of the Old Testament, but not yet perfect. But you have to remember that above this imperfect God in training was the perfect God the Father. So if that sounds like uh, an orthodox Trinitarian to you, then go ahead and claim Tertullian as your own. But if you don't think that that sounds very orthodox, which it isn't, then we can't use Tertullian as an early witness to Trinitarian theology. Instead, he's a witness to somewhat of a unique and bizarre form of Logos theology, where the pre-incarnate Jesus is a imperfect God who has to learn how to become a perfect God later in life, which is wild. I'll just say it that way. All right. So we've got Tertullian in the early 200s as another witness. Um, I'm going to talk about Origin for a little bit. Origin is also—he's extremely unique. In some ways, he is similar to the logos Christology, logos Christology that comes before him, but in some ways, he's different. And in some ways, I really think that that Origin really just belongs in a category all by himself. So the dates for origin, he lived from 185 to 253, and most of his works are written between 220 A.D. and 250 A.D., but he wrote over 6,000 books or works or tracks or however you want to define it. He was an extremely prolific writer, but only a tiny fraction of his works have survived. I actually have four videos on my YouTube channel that are about origin. Um, that I did with Hank, and then one video that I did with Father John Baer about origin, and Father John Baer is probably the the world's leading living expert on origin. He did a new translation of his books, and so I've got five videos on my channel in total about origin, if you want to learn more. Uh, But here are some interesting things that uh, are unique to origin. We consider, therefore, that there are three hypotheses, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, And at the same time, we believe nothing to be uncreated but the Father. We therefore, as the more pious and the truer course, admit that all things were made by the Logos and that the Holy Spirit is the most excellent and first in order of all that was made by the Father through Christ. And this perhaps is the reason why the Spirit is not said to be God's own Son, the only begotten Son is by nature, and from the beginning a son, and the Holy Spirit seems to have need of the Son to minister to him his essence, so as to enable him not only to exist, but to be wise and reasonable and just, and all that we must think of him as being. So I will say, Origin, and I didn't bring a quote for this, there, there are a couple of quotes, some of them are a little hard to understand, but Origin is the first one to say that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all co-eternal, in the sense that there is this eternal outside-of-time sequence of the Father beginning the Son, and then the Son creating the Holy Spirit. But this happens outside of created time. And um, Origen seems to be knowledgeable but critical of early Logos theologians who viewed the Son as coming into existence at a point in time. He says that this should be understood as happening outside of time. And that this was Origin was one of the first people to talk about what you could call eternal generation, which is later incorporated in the doctrine of the Trinity. But he also still uses the word create to describe this process of eternal generation, which will get anathematized later. And he's also unique in that the it's not that the Spirit is a direct begin or a, a direct um, generation from the Father. The Spirit is created through the Son, which is. Um, And it's not just filioque, this is different than that, that there's like this triple Russian doll sequence of father-son, son-spirit in uh, origin, and that he believes that the Holy Spirit receives his sort of divinity and even his wisdom and reason and stuff like that from the son, um, and so directly from the father. So that's just one difference. But here's another longer quote. They are, sorry. They are afraid that they may be proclaiming two gods, and their fear drives them into doctrines which are false and wicked. For either they deny that the Son has a distinct nature of his own besides the Father, and make him whom they call the Son to be God, all but the name. Right, so that's actually, this sounds very similar to Novation. He's criticizing modalism there. Or they deny the divinity of the Son, giving him a separate existence of his own and making his sphere of essence fall outside that of the Father so that they are separable from each other. To such persons, we have to say that God, on the one hand, is very God, right? Autotheos. And so the Savior says in his prayer to the Father that they may know you, the only true God, and that all beyond the very God is made God by participation in his divinity, and it is not simply called the God with the article, but rather God without the article. So basically he's differentiating between God the Father, who is God by himself and could be called the God and is the only true God, and everything else which can be made divine through participation, not by essence. And thus the firstborn of all creation, who is the first to be with God and to attract to himself divinity, is a being of more exalted rank, than the other gods beside him, of whom God is their God, as it is written, the God of gods, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth. It was by the offices of the firstborn that they became gods, for he drew from God in generous measure that they should be made gods, and he communicated it to them according to his own bounty. Though true God, then, is the God, and those who are formed after him are gods, images, as it were, of him the prototype. But the archetypal image, again, of all of these images is the word of God, who is in the beginning and who, by being with God, is at all times God, not possessing that of himself, but by his being with the Father and not continuing to be God, if we should think of this, except by remaining always in uninterrupted contemplation of the depths of the Father. So what's going on here? It's a little hard to understand, but it's not that hard to understand. We've got one big God who is called the God. And he makes other things divine by participation in God's own divinity. The way that this happens is through the sun. The sun gets a bounty of divinity that he has been given by participation in God. And then he shares this bounty of divinity with other lower divinities, the quote-unquote gods that you can see in the Old Testament. So it's like there's a super god. There is this one image of God who gets divinity from the big god, and then he can share it with other even smaller gods. And the way that the second god, the Logos, has this divinity is that he is always dwelling within God or always remains in uninterrupted contemplation of the depths of the Father. So because this Logos is always thinking about God, it has this divinity which it has received, which it can then give to other things. Um, Doesn't sound very orthodox to me, but maybe it does to you. All right. Um, so how is this Jesus the human divine in origin? This is also really interesting. For as he is himself the image, the invisible image of the invisible God, he invisibly bestowed upon all rational creatures a participation in himself in such a way that each one received from him a degree of participation to the extent of the loving affection by which they adhered to him. So basically, there are these rational souls which are existing in some higher realm, and they have free will, these souls, and they can adhere affectionately to God or not based off of their own free will. But whereas because of the faculty of free will, a variety and diversity had taken hold of individual souls so that one was attached to its creator by a more ardent and another by a feebler and weaker love, that soul of which Jesus said, no one takes my soul from me, adhering from the beginning of creation and ever after inseparably and indissolubly to him as to the wisdom and the word of God and the truth and the true light and receiving from him holy and passing one spirit with the substance of the soul mediating between God and the flesh, for it was not possible for the nature of God to be mingled with a body without a mediator, There is born, as we said, the God-man. Yet neither, on the other hand, was it contrary to the nature for that soul as a rational substance to receive God. And therefore, either because it was holy in the Son of God or because it received the Son of God wholly into itself, deservedly it is called, along with the flesh which it had assumed, the Son of God, the power of God, the Christ, and the wisdom of God. And on the other hand, the Son of God, through whom all things were created, is named Jesus Christ and the Son of Man. And moreover, the Son of God is said to have died, that is, in virtue of that nature, which could accept death. And he who is proclaimed as coming in the glory of the Father and with the holy angels is called the Son of Man. And for this reason, throughout the whole of Scripture, the divine nature is spoken of in human terms, and as much as human nature is adorned with marks indicative of the divine. And moreover, to whom it is more fitting to be one spirit with God than to this soul, which has so joined itself to God through love that it may deservedly be said to be on spirit, I think one spirit, excuse me, with him. So what's going on here? All right. I already talked about how there's a big God. There's a Logos God who then shares divinity with things. So one of the things that gets divinity given to it through the Logos is the human soul of Jesus which unlike all the other souls, um, unendingly and perfectly loved God from, and, and Origen believes all souls exist before they come into bodies. So this disembodied soul that will later become in, uh, incarnate in Jesus is loving the logos with a perfect love and affection from before all time. And so his soul then becomes this intermediary between God and divinity on the one hand and the human in which he indwells. So you can call the human the son of God, but that's because the soul has perfect affection for the true son of God, which is the Logos in heaven. So it's not like the human being is the the son of God in a one-to-one sense. It's that this human is connected through the affection of the soul to the real son of God in heaven. And that's why you can call him the Logos and the power of God and the Son of God, because this flesh has this bridge, which is this perfectly affectionate soul, which connects God the Father, who then gives a bunch of divinity to the Logos Son of God, and the Logos Son of God is then connected to this human soul through affection and love and participation. He doesn't think that there's an essence or something like that that becomes incarnate. And in a certain sense, the this incarnation is through affection of the soul that then dwells in the human being, Jesus. It's a very creative Christology and incarnation. I'm not sure if it's Orthodox. All right, Father John Baer, who I mentioned is one of the leading um, scholars on origin. All right, he, he's talking about the passage that I just read. This passage does seem to suggest classic originist teaching that there was a pre-existent realm of intellects all united to the word, but because in their varying love for him, they subsequently fell away in varying degrees. However, the scriptural verse given, no man takes my soul from me, I lay it down of myself, indicates that Origen is thinking of a different and scriptural rather than mythological scene altogether. The most concrete passage in Scripture where all who had with varying degrees of love adhered to the Creator fell away except one is the crucifixion, at least in the synoptic Gospels we'll return to John later. Though, of course, seen apocalyptically in the light of the cross, the whole Scripture is read as speaking about the continuing falling away from God from the beginning. When Jesus lays down his soul of his own accord, Origen says, adhering inseparably and indissolubly from the beginning of creation, yada, 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 yada. All right, I already read that part. Reading the passage this way, which is admittedly novel, flies in the face of the standard interpretation of Origen, which itself goes back to the polemics raised against him. It also flies in the face of what we think we know about Logos Christology and incarnation theology in the early church that we expect to find in Origen. And said, it might seem to present Origen as some kind of adoptionist, but it is nevertheless how Origen speaks concretely and explicitly in his commentary on the Gospel of John. So what is John Baer saying? He's saying that he, John Baer is rejecting the idea that Origen believed in a preexistent realm of intellects or preexistent souls. I think that's pretty hard to deny, but that's what John Baer is trying to deny, and so, if you're saying that this, when the soul in Jesus is adhering with unending affection and unseparable binding to the word of God, he's saying this happens at the crucifixion when everyone besides Jesus falls away except for Jesus. What he's saying then is that the love that the soul has for God is happening inside the human life of Jesus. And so that this union, between God and human is happening in the human life of Jesus. And that makes him sound almost exactly like what Paul Samosata said, where through fixity of character and resoluteness of will, he united himself to God. That's what Paul Samosata said, Paul Samasada said, if you listen earlier in the presentation. Origin, then, in Father John's Bear's reading, is actually very similar to Paul Samosata. Um, So he calls this adoptionism. I've been avoiding the word adoptionism because I think you should only be called an adoptionist if you actually believe Jesus was adopted at some point in time. But anyway, so the leading living scholar on Origen, Father John Baer, argues that Origen, even though he has this heavenly trinity, when it comes time to describe how the human Jesus is divine, it's this divine through moral participation in uh, the word of God. And not through the incarnation of the Logos in sort of that more classical Logos Christology. So, interesting. I'm not sure if John bears right, but I'll just bring that up. Novation. Thus, God the Father, the Founder and Creator of all things, who only knows no beginning, invisible, infinite, immortal, eternal, is one God. When he willed it, the Son, the Word, was born. He then, when the Father willed it, proceeded from the Father, he who is in the Father came forth from the Father, and he who is in the Father, because he was of the Father, was subsequently with the Father, because he came out of the Father. This is just clear two-stage logos uh, Christology. Novation is writing in 250 A.D. Some Trinitarians like to point to Novation as a um, early example of Trinitarian theology, but he is heretical on multiple points. He lists a series of attributes that are only true of God the Father, not true of the Son. He says that the Son came to existence at the will of the Father. That's technically heretical. And again, we get the two-stage thing where you have the word inside the Father and then subsequently outside the Father. So that would say that the Son came into existence at a certain period of time. Again, heretical, but completely normal for a two-stage Logos theologian like Justin Martyr or someone else to believe. So Novation is just another example of that theology. It's continuing. It's now in Rome in about 250 AD. All right, another quote from Novation God proceeding from God, causing a person second to the Father as being the Son, but not taking from the Father that characteristic that he is one God. If he had not been begotten compared to with him who was begotten and is being found equal, the they not being begotten would have reasonably given two gods. If he had been formed without a beginning like the Father, and he himself were consequently of all things as the Father is, this would have made two beginnings, and consequently two gods also had he been invisible compared to with him who compared with the invisible and declared equal, he would have shown forth two invisibles and thus also two gods. If incomprehensible, if also what other attributes belong to the Father, reasonably we say, he should have given rise to the allegation of two gods as these people think." So Novation is trying to defend why his theology doesn't count as two gods, and it's basically he thinks the Father is unbegotten, the Father is invisible, and the Father is incomprehensible, And all these things make him the one God, the son, the secondary God, although Novation tries to avoid that phrase, um, is not invisible, is begotten, is not eternal, is not incomprehensible. So therefore, he doesn't count as the highest God. So Novation defends his monotheism by exalting God the Father to have traits and a level of divinity that is above the divinity of the son. So that is just not um, orthodox. He's a two-stage subordinationist Logos theologian. All right, so we've got uh, Novation attesting in the 250s AD. All right, so this is a quote that I want to read from Constantine. This is Constantine talking at the Council of Nicaea. So I want to argue that the Council of Nicaea is not the beginning of Trinitarian theology. That happens later. So Constantine at the Council of Nicaea says this, Plato, the gentlest and most refined of all, who first essayed to draw men's thoughts from sensible to intellectual eternal objects and taught them to aspire to sublimer speculations, in the first place declared with truth a God exalted above every essence. But to him he added also a second, distinguishing them numerically as two, though both possessing one perfection, and the being of the second God proceeding from the first for he is the creator and controller of the universe and evidently supreme, while the second is the obedient agent of his commands, refers to the origin of all creation to him as the cause. So at the Council of Nicaea, the Emperor Constantine, who is no dummy, he was very well-educated, very theologically sophisticated, he'd been paying perfect attention the whole time, he knew the controversy that they were talking about. He says that our theology is that there's a big God and then a second God. He literally uses the phrase second God at the Council of Nicaea, the first is the creator and control of the universe and evidently supreme. So you've got a powerful big God. The second is an obedient age of the first God's commands and refers everything, all creation, to the first God as the cause. So you've got this super high God who has an obedient God at his command. So that's the, that's the Christology and the theology of the Council of Nicaea. It's not Trinitarianism. All right. And so if you read the Council of Nicaea's Creed, and this is from the 325 Creed, not the later 381 Creed, which is actually what most people recite at church, you can hear some interesting things. And if you like, keep in mind this Logos Christology that I've been talking about, you'll be like, I'd never seen the Nicene Creed that way before. That's very interesting. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. So who's the one God of the Nicene Creed? Is it the Trinity? No, the one God is the Father. And we also believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten. All right, so we've got one big God, the Father, and then we have this Lord who is begotten of the Father. All right, so this is the interesting part. That is, of the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, very God from very God. So why I think God from God and very God from very God should be understood as, as meaning at the Council of Nicaea is that there was a second God who came out of the first God. Now it is disagreeing with an Arian understanding of this. And I'll get to Arius in a minute. That Arius thought that the second God had a was not true God, and so you'll notice that Constantine says that they possess one perfection. And so what I think is happening here is you still have a big God, secondary God thing, but the Nicene Creed is being clear to articulate that the second God has the same perfection, the same divinity as God the Father. So we're getting closer to Trinitarianism, but it's still not that the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one God together. It's just that the second God has the same perfection as the first God. That's what, of the essence of the Father, God from God, life from life, very God from very God, consubstantial, that's what these things mean. We're also moving away from this idea that the Son is is made or created. This is another idea that the, so the Nicene Creed is certainly moving in the direction of elevating the sun, whereas people like Origen and Justin Martyr and other people were perfectly happy to say that the sun was a creature created by God. We're starting to avoid this creature creation language, but we still have a big God who's the almighty invisible God and this secondary God who is a God from the big God by whom all things were made, yada, yada, for our sakes became incarnate, yada, 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 suffered third day, yada, 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 and in the Holy Ghost. The Nicene Creed doesn't say anything about the um, Holy Spirit other than in the Holy Ghost. And what's also really interesting is the anathemas at the end of the Nicene Creed. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So all those statements are specifically condemning Arius. So we have a move away from the Logos Christology that we had seen come before, and we're starting to elevate the sun in a couple of distinct ways at the Council of Nicaea. But that doesn't mean that we yet have a trinity. I would say we just have a slightly higher Logos Christology than what had come before. All right, so... When is this happening? I think that this happens, starts to happen a little bit before the Council of Nicaea. So, at the beginning of the Arian controversy, and this is like in the 310s AD, so about 10, maybe 15 years max before, or 10 or 12 years, about 10 years, I should just say, before the Council of Nicaea, Alexander, who is the Bishop of Alexandria, is writing a letter to his bishops condemning Arius. And Alexander says this. We then assembled have anathematized these things that were said by the group around Arius. Who that hears John saying in the beginning was the word does not condemn those who say there was a time when the word did not exist. Or who hearing in the gospel the only begotten son and that through him all things were made will not hate those who proclaim that the son is one of those things that were made. How can he be one of the things which were made through himself? And how could he come into existence from nothing when the father has said, My heart has spewed out a good word, that is Logos. Or how can he be unlike the Father in essence, that is usia when he is the perfect image and radiant glory of the Father and says that he that has seen me has seen the Father? Again, how if the Son is the word and wisdom of God, could there be a time when he did not exist? That is equivalent to their saying that God was once without word and without wisdom. So I think Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, is the first to kind of move in this higher exalted theology. And he's sort of doing this encounter movement to Arius. And I'll say, I think Arius was actually sort of downgrading the sun compared to the earlier Logos theologians like Justin and Novation. So Arius is sort of going down by trying to further differentiate the son from the father, even than what had come before him. And Alexander is going the opposite direction of making them more and more equal, kind of at the disregard of the earlier Logos theology. So I think both Alexander and Arius are somewhat new and innovative, and that their interactions between each other, I think, drive each other to further extreme positions than the previous history had done. So what Arius says, and I talk about this more in a video I made about the Council of Nicaea, but this is Arius' is basically his own statement of his own theology before the Council of Nicaea. So God himself, as he really is, is inexpressible to all. He alone has no equal, no one similar, no one of the same glory. We call him unbegotten in contrast to him who was by nature is begotten. We praise him as without beginning in contrast to him who has no beginning. We worship him as timeless in contrast to him who has in time come to exist. So there is a triad, a trinity. Again, it, it's not like during this period, there was the Trinitarians and the non-Trinitarians. No one used the phrase Trinitarian or described themselves that way. Even Arius believes in a trinity of sorts and uses the word trinity. And in fact, in the early writings of Athanasius, who I'll get to later, he almost never uses the word trinity unless he's quoting Arius. And I think he even viewed the word trinity as somewhat an Arian type word and avoided it. So the word Trinity doesn't necessarily mean three gods in one person, or three three persons in one God, excuse me. Um, it can just mean the three of them or something like that. So Aries continues, their beings, that is, hypotheses, are not, not mixed together among themselves and as their glories, one infinitely more glorious than the other. The father in his essence, Usia, is a foreigner to the son because he exists without beginning. So Arius is doing this thing, you know, there there's only one who has is inexpressible, there's only one without beginning, only one timeless, only one who has an essence unto himself. So he's saying things similar to like Novation had said, but this drawing the distinction between the essences, this focus on essences had not really been a focus in the Logos Christology period. They didn't use the word essence that much or hypothesis that much. Some, but like during the Arian controversy The words essence, uh, which is usea, and being, which is hypothesis, these words become really focused on, and the whole debate comes centered on this sort of new vocabulary, which gets refined and sharpened, and it's a vocabulary that's kind of different than the vocabulary that had been used in the second, third centuries, which is why some people who know some about the Aryan controversy, when they read the earlier, people are like, well, they don't sound like Aryas, but you have to understand them in their own vocabulary, as I hope I've already tried to do. All right, so I think the Arian controversy was like this die hypostasism versus mia-hypostasism. In die hypostasis, which is just two hypostases, the father and the son have two hypostases. The father and son have different divinities. The father, the son is begun of the father in sequence. The son definitely is subordinate to the father. The son can be called a creature, but he's still distinct from the other creatures. The son appears on the father's behalf as God in the pre-incarnate Theophanies, and the father is utterly transcendent and is the only true God. In Mia which is one hypothesis, the father and one are one hypothesis. Like, like I said, at the Council of Nicaea, they anathemize anyone who believes that the father and the son are different hypotheses. If you know your later Trinitarian theology, it's the father and the son and the spirit are one, who see and three hypotheses. At the Council of Nicaea, it was actually anathematized to say that. You couldn't say that they were different hypotheses, but that's because hypostatus seems to mean the same thing or something similar enough to Usia. So what's interesting is I think that the later reconciliation between Arianism and anti-Arianism is what eventually creates the doctrine of the Trinity, Um, because at the Council of Nicaea, the anti-Arian position is actually even not in perfect agreement with the later, you know, final definition of Trinitarian orthodoxy. All right, the Son is co-eternal with the Father, the Son's flesh is subordinate to the Father, Um, the Son is definitely not a creature the incarnation is a unique and new encounter with the word and the divine nature is the transcendent and ineffable one true God. So that's the difference. So like I've been explaining, you previously had this logos incarnation Christology, which then splits into like high logos incarnation Christology and low logos incarnation Christology. And these two camps kind of go to war with like, they literally go to war with each other. And over the course of the fourth century, The wars between these two camps is what forges the final doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so here's Athanasius. This is in 360 AD. How then have they endured so much as to hear the spirit of the Son called a creature? Why have they not understood that just as by not dividing the Son from the Father, they ensure that God is one, so by dividing the Spirit from the Word, they no longer ensure that the Godhead in the Trinity is one for they tear it asunder, and mix with it a nature foreign to it, and of a different kind, and put it on a level with the creatures. On this showing, once again, the trinity is no longer one, but is compounded of two different natures, for the Son, as they have imagined, is essentially different. Either he is not a triad, but a dyad, with the creature left over, Or if he be a triad that is Trinity, as indeed he is, then how do they class the spirit who belongs to the triad or Trinity with the creatures which come after the triad? Therefore, while thinking falsely of the Holy Spirit, they do not even think truly of the Son. For if they thought correctly of the word, they would think soundly of the Spirit also. He who proceeds from the Father and belonging to the Son is from him, given to the disciples and all who believe in him. So I would say this is one of the first writings in history where I think we can check all of the boxes of what I called the late fourth, early fifth century Trinitarian consensus. And it shouldn't be too uh, surprising that Athanasius is one of the first people to articulate this. I don't think that's controversial. I will say, I think earlier Athanasius was still more in that Logos incarnation camp, although the high version of it, and over over the course of his life, in conversations with people who agreed with him, like Hilary of Poitiers and others, but in contradiction to Arius and his friends, that that's really what drives Athanasius to this kind of form of the Trinity, which we can recognize, where all three of them have the same Godhead, all three of them are eternal, all three of them aren't creatures, and all three of them are a triad of God together. I think that is where you finally start to see it. There's another quote; it says something pretty similar. Um, I'll skip over this quote for now because it's pretty repetitive. All right, so Gregory of Nisa, I think he's another person who really kind of helps. Forge the doctrine of the Trinity, because even in Athanasius, he didn't yet use the word hypostasis to differentiate them, because the Arians used hypostasis to differentiate the persons of the Trinity. I think Gregory of Nyssa takes the differentiation language from Arianism and keeps the unity language from anti-Arianism and comes up with a more philosophically sophisticated way of articulating what Athanasius even himself wouldn't quite say because Athanasius always struggled to differentiate the members of the Trinity. He never quite had a word for that. And it's sort of a lacking ingredient in his theology or philosophy. But Gregory of Nyssa says, how is it that in the case of our statements of the mysteries of the faith, Though confessing the three persons and acknowledging no difference of nature between them, we are in some sense at variation with our confession when we say that the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is one, and yet forbid men to say that there are three gods. The question is, as I have said, very difficult to deal with. So Gregory of Nyssa is dealing with this difficulty of being accused of believing in three gods, but he very much believes that there's a father, son, Holy Spirit, there are three hypotheses, and yet they share one Godhead. So we get an even clearer articulation. This is like the 370s AD that of the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, the Edict of Thessalonica. Um, so their Emperor Theodosius rises to power after there was some civil wars in the empire after the time of Constantine. And he, I think is trying to, the the Christian empire since the time of Constantine has been divided and arguing itself over this doctrine of the Trinity. And there are warring factions. And by warring, I mean warring, like killing each other and fighting levels of war. And that this Emperor Theodosius is tired of the fighting and he's ready to come to a conclusion. And he's ready for this argument to be done. And he's willing to use force to end the argument. Constantine and a lot of the other people after them were like, We should let the church talk about this and decide this amongst themselves. And Theodosius is like, that hasn't worked. We're coming to a conclusion and we're going to end this nonsense. So he issues the Edict of Thessalonica, 380 AD. It is our desire that all the various nations which are subject to our clemency and moderation should continue to profess that religion which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter, as it had been preserved by faithful tradition, and which is now professed by the pontiff Damasus and by Peter, bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic holiness. According to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, In equal majesty and in a holy trinity, we order the followers of this law to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignomious names of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. Firstly, they will suffer the chastisement of the divine condemnation. And secondly, the punishment of our authority, which in accordance with the will of heaven, we shall decide to inflict. So I think what happens is the Trinitarian theology, kind of from Athanasius and the Cappadocian fathers, more or less gets picked. And, you know, it's not like they're the only ones believing it. It's becoming more and more prominent. And so the emperor is sort of picking this theology among the rivaling theologies like Arianism, moderate Arianism, you know, other sorts of theologies that are existing and saying that this is the one and that if you don't believe it, you're a heretic and God will punish you. And also we have the right from God to punish you with force on earth. Uh, if you don't believe it. And this is really sort of the closing period of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll just read another quote from Augustine. He's in the early fifth century. Until a man is purified of this sort of uncleanness, he must just believe in the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, one one only God, great, omnipotent, good, just, merciful, creator of all things, visible and invisible, and whatever else humanity is capable of saying him that is true and worthy of him. And when he hears the Father called the only God, he must not exclude the Son or the Holy Spirit from that title, for he is, of course, the only God together with whomever he is the one God with. And so this is a different flavor, even than you see in the Cappadocian Fathers and Athanasius. We have one God who has all these attributes, which previously had been reserved for God the Father, but Augustine is saying that all these attributes are true of the whole Trinity, and that... We can't give the title of one only God just to the Father the way that basically all earlier Christians had. Even the, uh, even the Nicene Creed gives that title to only God. But uh, it's to the Father and whomever else he is the one God with. So the idea that the one God is no longer the Father, but this collection of three people is sort of unique in Augustine. And I'll also say that what's also interesting in Augustine is he's talking about people who don't understand or believe this. He's saying that you just sort of have to believe it. as a, And this idea that it's this mystery that you can't understand. And like the early church period, no one said that the doctrine of the Trinity was this mystery that you can't understand. They all argued for why their version was understandable and right. But later on, you start to get this sort of retreat into mystery that is also interesting that you see in Augustine. So my point with this is that A lot of modern Trinitarians sound like this Augustine quote. They don't even sound like Athanasius, let alone all those earlier people that I quoted that they sound very different from. And that Protestant Trinitarianism is really downstream from Augustine and that you don't see this flavor of Trinitarianism that's so common now until the early 5th century. And so if you don't see that uh, theology until the early 5th century, I think that's proof that a lot of Protestant Trinitarianism is still just downstream and dependent on the development in theology that was delivered to them by the Catholic Church, and that this is a criticism that I'll give to them, is that if you want the original apostolic teaching, you're going to have to go earlier than Augustine to really find that, and too many people in the Protestant tradition have been unwilling to do that. So here's the sort of final graph that I'll say. We can see biblical Unitarianism in black from Clement to Photinus. We can see early Logos, two-stage Logos theology from Justin Martyr, perhaps in the Epistle of Barnabas, although it's a little bit harder to say, all the way through the early 4th century. And then that splits into kind of high Logos Christology in Athanasius and Friends and low Logos Christology in Arius and Friends. And then you can also see the blue modalism theology. And there's some modalists in the 4th century, but it kind of goes extinct. And so I think there are really only two plausible claims on what is an early apostolic first century Christology. It's either biblical Unitarianism or two-stage logos theories. And I think that biblical Unitarianism, especially leaning on Clement of Rome, has the better claim to that title. So um, with that, I will conclude this presentation. Um, if you have any comments, I'd love to hear them. Uh, thanks for listening. I know this was pretty long, and I got pretty close to two hours this time. So thanks, everyone.